Welcome to this edition titled Focus on You, Heal the Healer of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. I'm Anna Richmond, a training manager at DCS, and I'm your host for this edition. In this edition of DCS Talks, we will discuss how healing yourself supports healing for our families and the DCS system as a whole. To tell us more about mitigating the effects of trauma on our workers, we have Lori Ellington with us today. Lori is the founder and chief executive officer of Ancient Science Incorporated, a leading edge human flourishing based on ancestral wisdom teachings and paradigm shifting breakthroughs in modern science. Lori's mission is to expand consciousness, turn trauma into healing, and transform the world with kindness and compassion. Lori has over 25 years of experience in mind-body medicine, coaching, teaching, consulting, and leadership. She's a licensed professional counselor, certified brain-based coach, master certified coach, heart math certified trainer, registered yoga teacher, and National Board Certified Health and Wellness Coach. Lori also holds a Certificate in Functional Integrative Nutrition. She is appreciated for her ability to evoke untapped capacities and help people rewire their nervous systems in support and transformation, healing, and growth. Her philosophy is that change happens from the inside out versus the outside in, and people have unleashed forces to self-regulate connect deeply as a human family and heal. She is associate faculty within the health and wellness coaching program at Maryland University of Integrative Health and associate faculty for the professional and continuing education department with subject matter expertise on the neuroscience of human relationships and stress resilience. Lori is also an associate faculty with the University of California, Davis where she teaches courses on the neurobiology of relationships, trauma, and healing. Lori is a living example of everything she teaches. She enjoys being in nature, loving acts of kindness, and helping people access their power. Lori, welcome to DCS Talks. Anna, I'm so happy to be here. Super grateful, honored, and I just feel so warm in my heart to be connecting with you today on probably the most important work that we could be doing as humans. So a lot of gratitude. Thank you so much. Oh gosh, thank you so much. Let's go ahead and dive in. I've got a question I want to start with today. Can you tell our listeners what you know about healing the healer? Well, I know healing the healer from a couple of different perspectives. One is there's a science to this, it, that it's imperative that the healer be on their own healing journey. But the other lens through which I have an understanding of healing the healer is my own personal journey, Anna, which you know a little bit about. I've got a few degrees and education certifications and all those things. But really, my journey to becoming a healer and holding space for people, really people do their own healing. I just hold the space and it's a, a you know, I help facilitate the process, but it all comes from within. My, my journey of trauma and adversity, starting at really the um, first day out here, 
<laughs> just right out of the gate. <laughs> um, my curriculum, my earth lessons began. You know, those struggles, those challenges, the trauma and the uh, abuse and maltreatment that I experienced. I know it sounds really maybe a little bizarre, but I'm so grateful for every single minute of it. And it has given me um, many, many wounds, many internal wounds to heal. But navigating that experience has allowed me to become kind of the, um, the wounded healer, so to speak. Having to navigate a journey where I have had to take the trauma and turn it into healing and transform my own story. I've had to upgrade my own story, upgrade my own nervous system. And through that process, I know personally what it's like to be able to navigate that experience. And in being able to upgrade my own nervous system and upgrade my own personal narrative to one not of trauma, but one of post-traumatic growth has allowed me to be able to facilitate and hold that space for other people. I'm more intimately connected to the idea of healing the healer from my own personal journey. And I will tell you that I'm still doing it. I shared uh, vulnerably that I'm on the path, and I personally call it the path of self-mastery. I feel like that's what I'm teaching, helping people not just know their power, but really be able to access it. And I am working on this every day myself and, and simultaneously helping other people to do the same thing. So it's a very personal, deep, intimate journey. And along the way, I've, because it can be so subjective, right, this, this experience that we have of healing and even helping other people to upgrade their stories and their narratives, that I bring the science to it. I really do believe at this time, um, the paradigm that we are in, that we need the hard science to back up what we are doing. It's almost like we just, we really don't have any time to be messing around. The world needs, we need personal, individual healing across the whole globe, collective healing. And that requires us not seeing humans through an us and them, but it's all us. I'd like to kind of tap into that a little bit further. Can you share why it's so important to focus on yourself in this work? I think we need some radical selfishness. And I think it's the only path to alleviating the suffering in the world, particularly in child welfare. Child welfare leaders and practitioners encounter, I think, some of the most challenging situations in the human experience. I don't think this is recognized either. And I think we come into this work as deep empaths. And that's a beautiful, beautiful quality that we have. It's what's required to be able to lift others up in a way that they can create a life that they prefer. And that's why I'm so honored to even be here with you today. I, I just, you know, not another industry that I think is contributing to healing and social change the way child welfare is. There is a challenge within that 
being a deep empath and this ability that child welfare practitioners have to be able to connect so deeply with other humans that we literally step into the shoes of the person who's suffering and you can walk that journey with them. A beautiful and important requirement for being able to help people to rewire their stories. But the challenge with that is, is we can catch those stories. Those trauma stories are contagious. We are so neurobiologically and energetically connected. And that's deep science based on modern findings in neuroscience, as well as quantum physics, the intersection between those two actually has given us so much information on how we're communicating with each other below conscious awareness. And because of that ability we have as humans paired with being a deep empath, our nervous systems can literally wire themselves to mirror the nervous system of somebody who's been on a path of trauma, adversity, abuse, and neglect. And we can start internalizing those same experiences and having this kind of shared trauma. And then that's not all. You know, as well as I do, Anna, that people who are drawn into this purpose-based work, uh, there often is a trauma narrative themselves. They have overcome challenges and adversity. And that lies at the heart of why they're so incredibly gifted and effective and strong in helping lift others up who are suffering because they have had a trauma narrative as well. And even if you're in child welfare and you did not drawn to this incredible work, because of walking through a trauma narrative, chances are, if you've been in the system for any length of time, you have experienced trauma, at a minimum little t trauma. But so many of us have experienced big T trauma, even if we don't talk about it, which I think is something that, you know, there's opportunity to do more of. But so that paired, you've already got a nervous system that has experienced wounds that might not be fully healed. Like I said, I my whole life is dedicated to this and I've been helping people heal, but I'm still, still upgrading my nervous system and my story because these wounds can be deep, below conscious awareness, wired deep into our neurophysiology. And they're in the form of networks that we can't always access consciously. And these can be triggered, they can be activated. And it sounds, it's it's so interesting to think about, it actually can be because of our strength of being an empath that they can be triggered at a deep level that we're not aware of. And so the wounds can be in some respects repeated. If we're not actively, intentionally, and mindfully working to heal our wounds while we're being mindful and aware of how we might be catching other people's trauma, then we're very vulnerable to creating the conditions inside of us that can unintentionally re-traumatize the people that we're serving. And so this requires deep focus on ourselves and in a way that may seem counterintuitive to how we've been maybe even raised, maybe trained, 
or what we feel like we should be focusing on because it, child welfare workers are the most selfless people in the world, right? People who work in human services. And so the idea of, you know, using the analogy of putting the mask on ourselves in the event of a water landing before we put it on somebody else, you know, if we were flying in an airplane, the idea of that, it's almost like it just goes against every cell in our body, but it is exactly what's required to be able to effectively hold a healing space. Otherwise, we could be mindless in those situations and do more harm than good. And on top of that, Anna, we are a part of the human family, so we can't leave ourselves out of the collective narrative. If we're gonna transform and upgrade the collective narrative to one of post-traumatic growth, resilience, and healing and really being able to access human potential we're a part of that so we don't get to child welfare workers don't get to be left out of that so the healer has to be able to know that journey in order to be able to facilitate that journey with somebody else you know oftentimes in this work of child welfare we hear the term vicarious trauma can you define that term for our listeners Vicarious trauma, sometimes referred to as secondary traumatic stress, has some overlaps with burnout, but not burnout. I think it's good to kind of use a little discernment when we're looking at these terms. But we'll just say vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress would be pretty similar. And really, the best way to describe this is to think of it as a shared trauma. I kind of mentioned this earlier that we can we can absorb, we can catch, we can weave into our neurophysiology the very pathways of trauma that the families that come into the system have experienced. And the thing about this is, is by default, it will just happen below our awareness. So much is going on below our awareness anyway, which is why it's so mission critical to increase conscious awareness about what we, about what's going on inside our minds, our brains, and our bodies. Because this is where vicarious trauma is landing. It is really a mind, brain, body effect. And it's it's part of being human because we're so interconnected as a human family and as a human species. It's just part of the way that we come wired. We come wired with a mirror neuron system in our brains covered in the 90s in Parma, Italy. And it really is some cool science that shows how our brains have these neurons that literally mirror what's going on inside somebody else's brains. So it's almost as if our brains don't know the difference between experience something ourselves or seeing it and witnessing it in somebody else. And although we're still unpacking the science and understanding the mirror neurons at a deeper level, that is one of the pieces of data, of hard science data, that we know that allows us to understand the internal mental states of other humans, which is so beautiful. But also we can understand the internal mental states of other humans so deeply that it's almost like we can become them in many ways. And so that's what's happening with we're catching that trauma. It's trauma that it's somebody else's trauma story, but it gets embedded, almost soaked up into 
our cells and throughout our mind body brain system and then we can start having very similar symptomology to the person who experienced the trauma and then if you think about people who come in with their own stories of adversity that they've overcome or still overcoming right and then there's the nature of the high threat environment so it's already putting the nervous system in a little bit of a high threat situation so it's almost like this this trifecta in child welfare that requires us to be almost like super mindful and intentional and deliberate about taking care of our neurobiology because so much of this is going on below conscious awareness and it is connected anna to so many so many symptoms of chronic illness whether it's cardiovascular disease diabetes fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. So many people, uh, you know, that are in the workforce have other types of arthritis, for example, maybe even irritable bowel syndrome, insomnia. These things are all connected to being in an elevated state of stress and potentially mirroring this trauma story into our own nervous systems. And then our nervous systems are basically responding as if we went through that same journey. It sounds like it's really important for us to heal the healer. So what does that mean? I think that some people, when they hear that, they might think, well, I wasn't wounded. I don't have any healing to do. One of the things that I want to do is just kind of dispel all of that. We all have wounds and we need to normalize it. And as I said before, you know, there's kind of this big T trauma, those big things that happen to us that most of us were familiar with. And then there's these little T traumas, these things that people might not consider as traumatic, but they can stack up and add up. I kind of call it death by a thousand paper cuts, these little traumas over time, right? Our nervous systems end up responding pretty much the same. So I think one thing that I want to really underscore here is it is all of us. It's not just some of us. Now there may be varying degrees and things like that. You know, some of us come in, for example, with some really high ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences, and some of us not so much. But just in this system of care and child welfare, the nature of working with the level of suffering that the workforce is, there's going to be some trauma. I think the other thing is thinking that we need to be fully healed is not necessary either. And th this isn't about perfection. This is about awareness and treating ourselves with the same level of care that we would somebody who we know has experienced adversity, abuse, and neglect, and not being perfect with it. This is not about perfection. This is about self-compassion, being okay with our own vulnerability, because that's our vulnerability is not something we want to move away from. It's something we want to go into. The only way out is really going in. In some respects, that's what I mean by healing the healer is being in touch with our vulnerability, which by the way, is where our greatest strengths lie. So if we don't go through our doorway of vulnerability and maybe where we've been challenged, we've struggled, then there are these pockets of wounds that can impact us at a non-conscious level and absolutely keep us from showing up 
as our greatest selves. The other most important thing is the treatment for everybody coming into child welfare is safety and co-regulation. Now, there may be other modalities that we use, but that's the primary intervention because that is exactly what people who come in with the trauma narratives have not experienced. What do I mean by that? Our nervous systems are always constantly scanning below conscious awareness for how safe am I in this social world with other humans? Because we're a family, we're a species. And we're scanning for cues of safety and danger all the time. This never stops. We come wired for it, it's immediate. In any situation where we pick up on more cues of danger versus safety, that's highly stressful for us. It completely throws us out of homeostasis and it can absolutely be a traumatic experience. And we have been around, if we have experienced a trauma narrative, we have been around people who are sending out by way of their traumatized nervous systems, more cues of danger than safety. This is a dysregulated nervous system. And with another person, it's two dysregulated nervous systems. So that can be almost like the perfect storm for wiring into the brain and the nervous system, a trauma of the world is not safe and people are not safe. So what people need when they come into a child welfare system of care is another nervous system to be able to get their nervous systems back into homeostasis and regulation so that they can start the healing and the repair. And that's not what they've experienced. It is the major piece of treatment. But if the workforce is not doing the work for their nervous system to be regulated, not perfect, we're all going to get dysregulated. We're not going to be perfect here. But working on healing the wounds, regulating our own nervous system so we can loan a regulated nervous system to those who don't have it. If we don't have that to give, then we're all just dysregulated and the trauma will just be just reignited over and over again. And then it ends up being the workforce and the people being served are just the walking wounded, just walking through this collective trauma narrative together. So the work is to create a sense of safety in the nervous system of the child welfare leaders and professionals because that is what's going to be projected out and wrapped around the families. It's a biological imperative, not a good idea, but a biological imperative that we have a nervous system when we are born to wrap around us, to be in the arms of another, in the arms of another nervous system so that we can heal. If we don't have that, human development is interrupted and it's impaired. And so this is what they are coming in for. If we don't focus selfishly on making sure our nervous systems are repaired and in good, good enough condition to wrap around that and another person's nervous system to co-regulate, help them to upgrade their inter, their stories. It's really this internal technology, right? And so the, all, the software programs are outdated. So, you know, one way to think about it, Anna, if right now you and I had software on our computers that was from 1998, we wouldn't be able to talk right now there would be no communication. We wouldn't be able to do this podcast. And what I mean by focusing on you and healing the healer, you've got to constantly be upgrading your internal software system or there's no way to connect 
with somebody else. It's outdated. And it is responding mindlessly from the same place it used to at a time when it worked, but it's no longer applicable to the current context. And that's dangerous for the workforce and for the families. How can we upgrade our software as you're referring to, and how can we really use those skills to heal ourselves? We know from a couple of different places, we have information, fortunately, at a level that we've never had before. And it's so cool. <laughs> it's really amazing. And, you know, this is what really gets my heart rate up every day is to, in a good way, is that the accessibility to tools and techniques for healing are just unlimited. We know from ancient ancestral wisdom, tools that will heal our nervous systems and that will prevent us from further getting wounded. And I think it's, I think there's two things here that, well, maybe even three, we need to prevent the wounds as best we can. And again, I think one of the things we wanna be careful here is to not be too rigid and to try to be too perfect because we will get self-critical and we will get judgmental. And that's just more trauma. Radical self-compassion is absolutely part of this work. And that's what the ancients have told us for thousands of years across the whole world. Our wisdom teachers, our mystics, our yogis, our sages, our guides have all laid down the pathway. But then here's what's cool. We've got studies in contemporary neuroscience, mind-body research, epigenetics, traumatology, coaching, leadership, physics, like so many areas where we have learned that, wow, what we've known for thousands of years really does actually rewire the nervous system. And what it takes is a multimodal approach to becoming more conscious as what I call really a co-creator, tools that are what I also refer to as mind, brain, body based. Some people refer to these as mind-body tools, but I even like to integrate the idea of the brain because the brain is not the mind. These are separate things. And so why is mindfulness so trendy right now? Why is it everywhere on magazines and podcasts, everywhere we see it, right? It's probably something in your email that you see right now because it works. We know from research neuroscientists such as Richie Davidson in his lab at the University of Wisconsin, and other amazing neuroscientists, uh, Amishi Jha, the University of Miami, on, in her work on attention and mindfulness, that it rewires the brain and it gets us out of what I kind of refer to as kind of mindless, non-conscious living, which can be a dangerous state when we're around intense human suffering. If we're not accessing the higher upstairs regions of our brain that separate us from lower primates that allow us to self-regulate at levels that we haven't even begun to tap. Humans have incredible capacity, self-regulatory capacity that we haven't even scratched the surface of. I'm definitely on a mission to help us tap into that. And that's what I mean by knowing and accessing our power. But this really does require cultivation of the networks in our brain and in our nervous system that allow us to be conscious and aware of what's on around us 
So we're just not moving around in like Groundhog Day. So mindfulness practice, having a daily practice. And we say we don't have time for it. We don't have time not to do it. But there's other lifestyle medicine practices as well. There's so many. So many ways to breathe, Anna. Breath is one of our most advanced internal software that we can access. Just learning how to breathe in ways that allow us to be more conscious is mission critical. Moving, dislodging the energy that we can absorb from someone who's suffering that gets kind of wired at the cellular level, deep into the, the issues are in the tissues. This is deep into our body. So body work, this could be yoga. It could be exercise where you're moving regularly so that that the energy is not getting stored deep in our nervous system is so important. So mindfulness, moving, breathing. This is a tough one, especially with the nutritional challenges that we have in our society right now. It is really, it can be really challenging to eat for healing. Food is instruction and it is instructing our genes. And we have health genes and disease genes. And what we eat is upregulating and turning on like a switch. Genes of cardiovascular disorder, diabetes, or genes of health, well-being, and resilience. And so even just paying attention and being a little bit more mindful of the inflammatory levels of the foods that we eat. It sounds like, oh my God, Lori, I don't have time to focus on what I eat. It's all I can do to, you know, get something to drink or, you know, maybe squeeze in a bag of chips or something in between my meetings with families. And I hear that. I know that these are big challenges. It requires a change in culture. But, you know, these are some of the pieces that I think are really critical for us being able to heal our own nervous systems. We may need to do our own work and with healing modalities, such as, you know, something such as like EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. I do not believe that that is just for the families that come into child welfare. That is for the workforce as well. Doesn't mean everybody needs that particular kind of therapy, but that's an example of really a mind-brain-body technique that helps to rewire the pathways in the nervous system and upgrade the story, the internal story. Psychodrama. It's, that's kind of like individual therapy in a group context, being able to play out our stories in a way that allows us to have a corrective emotional experience and dislodge some of the trauma and the pain that can get rewired into a child welfare worker's nervous system. Those are just some examples. And I know that we have our Vegas Nerve series that we're running right now. Many strategies are shared in there around taking care and healing our Vegas Nerve. We've learned so much about how important this 10th cranial nerve is which is really the mind-brain-body connection. It's kind of the super bi-directional pathway through which everything is connected. And it's one of the ways that food is instruction because it connects the brain and the skull with the brain and the heart, all the visceral organs and all the way down to the gut, which is where most of our neurotransmitters are released. So if we're not moving, if we're not sleeping, if the instructions that are coming into our mouth are inflammatory, what does that mean for a child welfare worker? That means they have brain fog. 
That means they aren't able to respond to their emails as well, do their case reports, investigations in the home are going to be interrupted. Why? Because it impacts the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is so important to be able to have a courageous conversation with a family, for example, to have a healing, compassionate conversation with the family. Compassion networks are in the higher regions of the brain, not in the lower, where we're emotionally reactive, like in the limbic system where the amygdala is. And if we're not careful, if we're not practicing lifestyle medicine in a way that works with a lifestyle medicine plan that is designed to upgrade the internal soft technology and keep the nervous system in a place of internal safety, if we're not doing that, by default, we're either going to get sick and or, not either, it'll be both, we will be compromised. And then we're going to be sending out signals. It sounds bizarre, but as mammals, we will send out signals that we can't see, but they're there, they're measurable, of warning and threat to people who have been receiving those all of their lives. And then unfortunately, that can go the other way. Then that's more warning and threat coming back to the nervous system of the child welfare worker. So these things can sometimes seem like I don't have time. I can't, I can't exercise. It's hard for me to eat right. And I understand these are challenging. But as you know, one of the things I encourage is even little micro moments of finding internal safety in our nervous system. I know you have, you know, you do a really good job of, you may or may not always do like a 60 or 90 minute yoga session, but you've got your yoga mat there and intermittently you get on that and you move, even if it's only for five or 10 minutes or you start your day out with that, or you pause and you use your breath to reset your nervous system so that you are in condition to be able to hold space for people who are hurting. There's so many practices because many of us come into the system and our trauma is developmental, zero to three. There's no words for it. We may need something that really taps into the body where there's no language, but there's patterns and there's energy. I really do believe that all child welfare workers and practitioners should have some type of a lifestyle medicine plan to prevent, heal, and maintain internal healthy conditions. Lori, how can we model those same skills to help heal others that we're working with in the child welfare system? The first thing is we got to do our own inner work. It's not possible to help somebody else do their inner work without us doing our inner work. And that looks a little different for everybody. And I really want to emphasize that it's not about being perfect. It's about getting on the path and staying with it mindfully and intentionally and exercising self-compassion. And self-compassion isn't enabling ourselves to get away with things. It's not self-pity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really being taking an honest look at what's going on with ourselves and doing that work and staying on the path, not assuming that we got there. Because child welfare practitioners and leaders are constantly in a soup of trauma. And so that requires continuous self-monitoring, self-investigation, self-observing. I think that one of the most important reasons 
why we need to be on this path, even just for our own health and wellness, right? Is because child welfare system of care is so critical to taking care of the human family that if it's sick, it's not going to be able to be in service to those who are also in a state of dis or unease. Lori, thank you so much for all of the information today. Where can we learn more? First of all, hats off to Department of Children's Services because I have just been unbelievably impressed with the course offerings that you guys provide that are really bedded in modern neuroscience. And I think understanding the neurophysiology of a trauma journey is one of the best things we can do to elevate compassion levels and decrease judgment. It's our nervous systems, it's our brains, it's what we're, you know, it's how we come wired. And understanding that I think just allows us to be able to hold that compassionate space with people, which is so important. So I think what you guys are offering is just so beautiful. It's a good place to start. I have a website if people are interested in learning more about my work, and it is ancientscience.net. It's currently under construction right now, but people are more than welcome to go there and visit and sign up. And if they sign up, they'll be receiving additional course offerings. I've got a podcast I'm going to be launching, a YouTube channel as well later on, and just additional information on lifestyle medicine. Lori, thank you so much for joining us for this DCS Talks edition. I really want to thank our listener as well for joining us, for focusing on yourself and being on this healing journey. We do invite you to join DCS Talks again to hear other subject matter experts discussing ways to advocate for our children and families.